Stop. Did you say Heartbleed? So I'm constantly going, no, 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 stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. Alrighty, let's do it. Alright, here we go. Today is Tuesday, August 26, 2014, and this is episode 81 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. Thank you for having me back to the show yet again. Absolutely. So, um, before we get into our show, I I have some late-breaking news uh, the late breaking news is that EC Council now has a certified CISO class. Oh, um, well, okay. Yeah. I, so, so now all you got to do is pay, uh, I don't know, a couple thousand bucks, and you too can be a CISO. Wow. That's all it took. I mean, all this time, that was all it took. So, is there a lot of demand for this particular certification? I have no freaking clue. <laughs> And so once I go get this, by the way, is Sally Struthers pitching it yet? That's my first question. Second question, uh, can I follow up on my TV VCR repair and move right into this class? And third question. Uh, you can't uh, come up with a third one, can you? Well, I'm just trying to figure out who would hire based on this certification. I don't know. Well, it, it and, does- and, and, and that leads to a broader question of, what makes a good CISO to begin with? It did. It did say that it's based on the A plus framework. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, if it was an A minus or even a B plus, I, you know, it's not as. S- st- yeah. Does does just doesn't have the same oomph as. Well, A-plus. you know, there's a lot of controversy swirling around the Twitterverse this week about the new. <clears throat> I hate saying this, but cyber czar at the White House. Uh, not being technical, so not to derail the show at all because this isn't even in our show notes. But uh, maybe one of the days we should talk about what makes a good CISO because that's a that's a pretty big topic. Well, I I, I have to tell you it, it's 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 very funny. I was actually reading an article about the new cyber czar and how uh, how he's basically flaunting his ignorance when I actually saw the banner ad for the EC Council certified CSO. CISO. It all comes back together. Uh, yes, yes. There you go. It's, you know what's bad is I don't even know who the EC Council is. I, I'm, I'm ignorant of that's them. That's the uh, Certified Ethical Hacker people. Oh, thank you, thank you. They're okay. the ones whose website kept getting owned about six months ago. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's funny. But, however, having worked at security companies in both IT roles and not in IT roles, I can tell you that just because you're a security company does not mean your IT has the budget oh, or agree. the staff they need, right? And, totally and if you're, agree. And, and this is something that I used to fight so often with executives, too. When you're trying to have your revenue-generating guys who are out there doing consulting, whatever, come in and do internal work, huge mistake, right? So there needs to be a separation of duties. There needs to be accountability and authority. So just because you're a security company does not mean you have good internal security. That's, that is for sure. Um, debatably, I think based on our... Our experience, a lot of times it's cobbler's children type of a situation. So, uh, having said that, we'll get into our stories. Our first story tonight comes from CSO Online, and you actually, uh, there's going to be a theme here. 
The first story uh, is titled, Community Health Systems Blames China for Recent Data Breach. And uh, CHS apparently discovered that there were around 4.5 million records, uh, which consisted of names, dates of birth, social security numbers, addresses, all of the normal stuff you would need to carry out a very effective uh, ID theft operation was apparently stolen by a a group identified as APT18 by Mandiant. Question, what happened to 2 through 17? I don't know. I'm assuming that some of them are stealing like the, you know, the toy secrets and I'm just I, curious. I, I mean, I APT18 seems a big jump. I didn't I didn't see the the prequels. We don't know. Hopefully someday we will be talking about them. All right. There's Carry on. lots lots more shows to, to to you know to record here. So we gotta we gotta keep something. <laughs> All right. So uh, so anyhow, um, one of the interesting uh, comments in this article is that uh, CHS issued a statement that says it carries cyber slash privacy liability insurance to protect itself against certain losses related to matters of this nature, which, uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's becoming kind of an, uh, a common response. However, you know, this, this uh, I think, was announced last Monday. And then last Tuesday, I wasn't feeling so hot, and so I was sitting in front of the TV watching Twitter, and uh, uh, Mr. Dave Kennedy tweeted that he was about to go on Fox News and drop some really... Uh, some really big announcement. <clears throat> so I, of course, tuned in, and uh, he's he's apparently a pretty frequent guest. And the uh, the, the commentators were, uh, you know, as Fox News is wont to do, were really bashing on Obamacare and the healthcare healthcare.gov site. And uh, Dave couldn't really get in a word in edgewise, and and finally he just blurted it out: CHS got breached by Heartbleed. Nice. <laughs> so, which I'm assuming the commentators didn't really know exactly what that meant or why that was relevant. So, so the, I don't, as I recall, I don't think they even missed a beat, and they just went right back to uh, to bashing healthcare.gov. You know, if we were competent podcasters, right now is when we would play an audio clip of that interview. However, we're just lame guys sitting in a basement. So, carry on. Yes, absolutely, and you know, maybe I'll actually do that. If we were really cool, we would have that uh, the uh, news guys from Korea who develop reenactments of news stories <laughs> and animation. <laughs> yes, yes, we'll work on that. That's not in the budget yet, but we'll. <laughs> so, uh, so anyhow, the story here is that apparently Trusted Sec, which is Dave Kennedy's company somehow determined that a vulnerable uh, a Juniper VPN device uh, that was vulnerable to Heartbleed was apparently the method that the attackers used to get in. So allegedly they they used that vulnerability to steal credentials, which then in turn let them get into the network. You know, I, I as I was thinking about it, I got to wondering, that just lets you into the network. I, I wonder if, you know, maybe this was a, uh, a VPN gateway using uh let's say active directory for authentication that let them that let then let the uh, the bad guys in deeper into the network 
there's really no detail about that, but uh, it's also not clear when CHS patched the device relative to uh, you know when Heartbleed was announced and and when these people uh, attacked it. But you know, it's conceivable that they they may have patched it very quickly. Uh, however, I guess APT eighteen, if we're to believe uh, the stories here, uh, apparently was really on the ball and stole some credentials. So we don't really have a, a good handle on the timeline, but um, it, it appears to extend back into early April. Yeah, it's interesting. In theory, I've not heard of a ton of actual big breaches being caused by Heartbleed. Heartbleed obviously got a ton of press, uh, but this is a pretty big one. And yeah, pretty big news. Absolutely. All the more, all the more reason, by the way, to utilize two-factor authentication on anything exterior and able to receive anonymous connections. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. Um, you know, one thing that that Dave Kennedy did mention that he he believed this was the first instance of a breach related to Heartbleed. Although, as it's uh, as it's subsequently been reported, it's actually the third one. There was ah. there was one in Canada which I think we talked about at the time. Yep. That the, yep. the guy, I, that. I think the guy stole nine records because he was a polite Canadian. That's true, but that was a you know substantial portion of Canada. True. Well, that's true. That's true. Now, now we lost Canada. <laughs> oh, well. well, we just got well, over twenty listeners too. We'll be back down to eighteen. It's okay. So sorry, Canada. Um, I, I like your hockey. Absolutely. But I think the key point is it's relatively rare, right, for as much press as that got. Now, you could argue maybe all the press was a good thing to get people to patch and to deal with things very quickly. But as we know, people don't patch. Yeah. Not everybody, not all the time, especially network gear. Uh, this that's is one right. thing that, you know, can you imagine if we saw a huge issue in Cisco perimeter router? People wouldn't patch. They'd be like, eh. Uh, I I would say that in large measure, this probably uh, did impact quite a few Cisco routers. Oh, well, yeah, I guess, AS, I guess m- more ASAs, I suppose. Yeah, those with you know the right libraries and such running. But um, but Juniper SSL events are incredibly prevalent, and mm-hmm. uh, I vaguely recall. Don't quote me on this, but I vaguely recall there was a pretty big lag in time. With Juniper getting their patches out, uh, I may be wrong, but that's what my memory is telling me. Um, I may have to go back and look. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I um, I've read conflicting reports on that. One mm. article said it was really quick, and another said it was, uh, you know, an extended amount of time. So I'm not really sure what it was. But you know, it, it's an interesting point that when something like this comes out, th- there isn't always a patch for the, a vulnerability that you're you're faced with. That's true. And, uh, you know, that's something that I've seen organizations wrestle with quite a lot. You know, when you talk about vulnerability management, a lot of people default to, you know, they basically equate it with patch management, but it's more complicated than that. And unfortunately in the case like this, you have to make the, the decision, you know, what do you do? If you know that your, your VPN router is, is susceptible to this attack, but your business relies on it, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's tough. If you know specifically in this case, we knew specifically it was credential stealing, you could make it harder by using two-factor authentication. But 
that's not always going to be the case. So you can't easily, with hindsight, you can say, well, you know, if you had employed two-factor authentication, you mitigated this risk to a certain extent, not to zero, but to a certain extent. But what if it's something next time where it's a complete bypass of authentication? Right. Right? You don't know, right? So I think it's a matter of at least having the wherewithal to understand that these sorts of events can occur, will occur, and having enough architectural knowledge and security knowledge and cluefulness, oh, and enough spare time to perhaps come up with some sort of game plan to limit that up into perhaps disabling that service, right? That's a decision that may be made by the organization. It depends on the risk, and it depends on what that service is. I don't know if there is any one right answer, but it's an active, engaged, investigative thought process that businesses need to go through whenever these big events come out and figure out what they need to do for their organization to minimize risk to an acceptable level. Yeah, and I think the other the other thing I'll default back to is something we talk about a lot, which is you know getting back to being able to detect when anomalous things are happening. Yeah, definitely. You know, so so presumably it's not normal to see someone. We we don't really have any detail about how the, the records were stolen. If it was you know in one big batch or if it was slowly bleeding out, but but um, you know hopefully there may have been some some signal if if uh if it were being watched that could be could be caught otherwise it's it is a really difficult uh situation and you have to make a business decision when it when it comes up and uh, you know sometimes you, you you take a calculated risk um, you know and, and uh <clears throat> there was an interesting an interesting point brought up in one of these articles uh in particular with hospitals <clears throat> the the dynamics and investment around security are are much more nuanced than a lot of other areas because you know if you're for for every dollar you're spending on on information security presumably you're not spending that dollar on patient care or you know new new systems or or what have you uh, and that kind of dovetails actually into the into the third article which is also from CSO titled more problems emerge on the <clears throat> CHS network and so a company called Looking Glass uh, checked into CHS's address space, and I assume they did this as a result of the news last week, and they found that 10 of their 12,500 IP addresses were listed as um, as participating in some botnet or other, including uh, the Asprox, Kelios, Configur, Ramdo, Salady, and Zeus uh, botnets, and uh, apparently, each of those ten IP addresses were uh, were being flagged for more than one threat. So you know, it's not really clear exactly what's going on there. Um, but the, the they they take uh, some pains to point out that the Configure one is kind of interesting because Configure is a is something that that <laughs> leverages a very old vulnerability from back in two thousand eight, and it was really uh, prevalent with Windows XP systems. And I, I think they do pick on the hospital setting a little bit because uh, you know there's there apparently are quite a few XP systems, especially in, um, I guess I would say, more of the medical, embedded medical device arena, which, which again is an interesting topic because 
uh, a lot of times those devices are certified. You know, there's a very extensive process that that goes around or goes into certifying, you know, a particular computer with a particular operating system and a particular application connected to a particular piece of hardware. And it's not, you just don't get to apply a service pack. Uh, Yeah, much less other third-party software. Right. It's a tough, tough, tough problem. Right. And I have never worked exclusively in a healthcare environment. We've got a couple of friends who, who do, and I don't envy them. Uh, it goes back to, I think, what you and I have talked about a lot, which is having strong instrumentation to be able to detect vulnerabilities, sorry, not vulnerabilities, but compromise hosts as quickly as possible. Yeah. Uh, and I think ultimately these hospital systems are probably going to have to put pressure back on the vendors of these pseudo-embedded systems to allow them to do something like add whitelisting technology or patch or something. Right, right. Uh, it's a tough one. And I think this is actually going to be a more prevalent problem going forward. I Not to get into long-term predictions, but I, I somewhat sense we are getting closer to a well a stasis if you will where things like windows xp can exist for a very 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 long time much longer than things in the past were you know windows 7 may be out there for a very long time especially if windows keeps screwing up future releases because i'm seeing less and less reason aside from end of support reasons for businesses to make the upgrade leap mhm we're kind of getting to the most part, incremental upgrades on new operating systems. There's nothing very revolutionary they would think otherwise. Uh, that's coming. Windows 8 was really not very compelling aside from perhaps touchscreens, uh, even though there was some nice security stuff in there. So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with networking security gear, that if it works, don't touch it. And I'm wondering if we're going to get there as well to a certain extent with operating systems. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I see businesses sort of going, hey, we had a huge upgrade cycle, upgrade cycle, upgrade cycle, and I've got so much power now. I don't think my spreadsheet's going to get that much more complicated that I need to upgrade. Uh, you know, to be honest, I think that was why we saw so much. Um, you know, so much inertia or, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to call it behind uh, not moving to XP or you're basically dragging your feet off of XP because it, yeah. it just worked uh, for, for a lot of people. And I think you're, you're on a good point, whether or not it comes to fruition is another, is another question. But I think that, you know, if you look at other areas, like say the embedded control market, you know the industrial control systems. You know, the, I think that the the pieces of medical technology are probably more. We should probably think about them more. And I know I'm oversimplifying, and so I apologize to all the healthcare people out there. Um, we should probably think about those systems more in in the light of those industrial control systems than like a you know a, a you know, administrative PC, uh, you know, a, a, a workstation, because they're they're, you know, they're investments. They they serve they serve a dedicated purpose, and usually they're not you know they're not tweaked. They're not they're just uh, they're they're put in place for a particular purpose. That you're not constantly adding features and upgrading 
software. So I think that uh, something has to change because on the one hand, you know, you, you can say that, well, here we have the situation where, you know, hosp- we, we know these healthcare organizations have these vulnerable systems on their network. And the obvious answer is, well, if you can't upgrade them, you got to wrap something around them. But that costs money too. Well, then do we go to a model where, in essence, Microsoft is not going to, as much as we would like to, end support, and that we go to a, a long-term sort of maintenance cycle where you're paying you know, maintenance costs to keep Microsoft making patches and such? Po- possibly so. You know, I wonder if, um, if eventually there will be a move off of XP or not XP, but a move off of uh, off of something like Windows as a as a platform. You know, that's that's, that's tough. It, it 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 is it is tough. But at the same time, I, I think the models seem to be incompatible. You know, the, the I I understand there's many many benefits and options out there, but I think the problem you've got for the non technical community is for good or ill, Microsoft's paradigm is understood mm-hmm. better than Linux or an embedded Linux. Now, when you look at something that's been successful like the iPhone that has a completely new UI, but it's incredibly intuitive, however, it's also incredibly limited, then we might be able to talk about something as an option, right? Perhaps something like a tightly controlled, tightly patched, very limited configurability box, yeah. becomes an option for these sorts of situations. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you, especially from a development perspective and a usability perspective. Everybody's familiar with, with the Microsoft model both on both ends of the spectrum. I, but I think that I think there's just a, a there's just an incompatibility between what's needed uh, from a platform and what it can deliver in in these yep. particular circumstances. I don't know what that what that means. You know, if that means that um, you know, I guess a good option might be, you know, Microsoft has embedded operating systems, you know, like uh, the, the Microsoft XP, the Windows XP embedded is supported through, I think, 2019. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's out a few years, right? It's, it's, it's not, it didn't, it didn't end already. But even so, I think there's still a problem that if a, you know, let's say you, you're using Windows 7 embedded. I'm not even sure that there is such a thing, right? And tomorrow there's some new, uh, some new, you know, network vulner- network-based vulnerability akin to what we saw in 2008. And and to fix that, you require a patch. The problem is that you can't apply that patch to you know to your your MRI or your you know whatever whatever piece of technology. Until somebody pays some a whole bunch of money to take it through, uh, you know, to take it through the the certification process, and that might not happen. So, does this go back to the customers not demanding this from the manufacturers? Ultimately, I think that's where it has to change. Yeah, you know, clearly we don't work in healthcare IT, right? Yeah. Uh, we're, we're pontificating about stuff we don't know anything about. <laughs> right. And so probably all of our listeners in this world are going, you guys are idiots. But um, 
But if I look at the basic tenets of supply and demand and you know, businesses are going to provide for the customers what they have to competitively and what the customers are demanding. So if this is missing, I have to go back to thinking, well, it's because the customers aren't asking for it. And, and that's not unrare in most of these industries. It's a very specific, odd, stupid little pocket case we're talking about here that somebody who runs a hospital chain isn't ever going to probably even think about in their day to day unless somebody brings it to their attention. Yep, exactly. So maybe, as much as I hate to say this, it might have to be some sort of compliance initiative. <laughs> wow. I know. I don't want it that way. But I bet it, it would have more of a chance of happening under a compliance initiative. Like, compliance dictates must be able to patch, right? <laughs> or, you know, you must run whitelisting or, yeah. you know, compatible type things to yep. limit the attack surface. I don't know, but there aren't a lot of, there aren't many good, good answers. And, you know, clearly it's not working very well. Yeah. So, and, you know, maybe there are vendors out there that have solved this and we're, you know, we're talking about the periphery. We, I, I don't really right. know. And they're screaming to come buy our stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, um, so we beat that. But that one to death. Let's move on. Our next story comes from Security Week. The title is Secret Service. Over 1,000 businesses infected with the back off, back off, sorry, point of sale malware. So um, the uh, the Secret Service and US CERT and DHS and a whole bunch of other acronyms released a advisory about this back off malware, which apparently is uh, uh, allegedly the, uh, the the source of a whole bunch of card breaches. And uh, it, one of the things that, that uh, is not really well said is how they came to understand how there are 1,000 breaches, or uh, sorry, 1,000 businesses impacted by this. Uh, we can assume that maybe they're, you know, they've, They've seen traffic to and from a botnet, don't really know, but apparently they are trying to reach out to uh, organizations that that they're able to identify, which are impacted. And apparently uh, one of those organizations that was impacted was the UPS store. Um, And uh, the UPS store apparently, after seeing the alert on July 31st, they uh, allegedly did some introspection and found that they uh, they were actually infected. And so that, that is how we came to know about that. Uh, Backoff is a RAM scraping malware. Uh, it's, and this is similar in nature to the, the what, what happened at Target and P.F. Chang's and, and on and on and on. We don't really know for sure if it's the same malware. There's obviously not a, to- a whole... A lot of detail about that particular uh, aspect of it. Um, it's interesting that the apparent method of delivery of this is using remote desktop type tools. So uh, I guess the attackers are essentially scanning uh, organizations' net blocks, looking for... Uh, for Microsoft RDP, Apple Remote Desktop, Chrome Remote Desktop, Splashtop, Pulseway, LogMeIn, and I would assume things like VNC and and probably others. 
And when they find them, they run some uh, some basic brute force login attempts. And of course, uh, all too often, apparently they're pretty uh, pretty weakly configured. And uh, once they once the attackers are able to connect, they upload the malware, and it's off to the races. So, um, <clears throat> DHS actually made a couple of recommendations. Uh, some of some of them are interesting, and I'll I'll just go through them, and then I'll tell you why I think this is uh, maybe a little mis misguided. Um, so, they recommend that retailers first off work with their vendors, so their their service providers, their antivirus vendors, and anybody else, I guess, uh, maybe their pet groomer, to determine if they've actually been infected uh, by this. Uh, this malware. So, you know, first off, let's figure out if we're if we're infected, and uh, and then they they give some recommendations on how to avoid infection. Uh, number one is to limit which vendors have access to your network. Seems like pretty good advice. Uh, number two, use long and complex passwords. Number three, use two-factor authentication. Number four, lock out accounts after some failed. Uh, failed login attempts. Uh, number uh, number four. Put the the POS systems on a different network. And number five. Use card readers that encrypt the data on the reader rather than on the POS terminal. So I, I think what we'll end up finding, I suspect, is that a lot of these thousand companies are probably really small, you know, pretty small outfits, and. What struck me as odd is that this is this communication is really focused at the uh, at the retail organizations, and to me it seems like it should also be focused at least as much on the POS vendors and support organizations because I think a lot of a lot of this stuff is generally outside of the control or outside of the day to day control of the retailers, you know, the mom and pop retail or the, the small chain store who's outsourced this responsibility to someone else, you know, they are, those companies are the ones that need to use the long passwords and, you know, make sure that, uh, uh, that the lockout, you know, activity lockouts are, or sorry, failed login lockouts are, are enabled and, and, you know, those, those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, that's, that's uh it's it's a uh, apparently a growing business right now i i'm going to be interested to see what verizon says about this uh this current spate of ram scraping malware in their report next year because you know uh last year in, in the 2000 the, the report they released earlier this year they kind of poo-pooed the whole ram scraping thing saying that you know this is uh this is kind of old news we we talked about this, you know, back several years ago, and you know, we you guys because of Target are just now talking about it. So I'm really curious to see is this the the summer shark attack story, and now every time something happens, we hear about it, or is this is this really a significant new uh, new threat? I, I'm not really sure. It certainly is uh, hitting the hitting the news a lot. Well, it's something the PCI Council cares about. Um, you know, the 3.0 has some guidance around this as well to, to minimize, as they call it, pan-sad info in memory. 
unencrypted. Yeah. Um, but that's not hardcore sort of requirements as far as I know. I need, I need to actually read it a little deeper. But it's one of those things that once a technique becomes effective, bad guys are going to copy it. Yeah. Yep. Obviously, it's uh, it, you know. I think I suspect. Well, once we, if we ever get in it, get into it, I, there's probably a, a pretty mechanized um, marketplace for this. You know, with with people delivering it and uh, and collecting the the card data. I, I suspect sure. we're going to find I- out. I'm sure that these sorts of landscaper for credit card data is just part of one of many malware families and in the malware toolkits, and it's easy to enable if you're a bad guy. Mm-hmm. So it's it's got to be dealt with at this point. I think it's reached enough critical mass that it is a, a meaningful concern. Yeah. The other the other uh, the other item I would say is the. Uh and I've seen this in a number of different contexts, different venues. There, a lot of the discussion has been that early in the backoff uh, in, infection, antivirus wasn't detecting it. But there's there's kind of this uh, illusion that it is being detected now. And I have to wonder if you know is that is that really overplaying <laughs> the protection? Right? I, I've got to believe. And, and how can you trust that? Okay, one variant got detected today. Right, right. I, I, this is not a black or white issue. Right, but but my concern is that I think the way a lot of these alerts and stories are being written is that yeah, when it first came out, it wasn't detected. However, uh, you know, antivirus now has detection for it, and, and my concern would be well that you know we we see all too often people get this false sense of security with antivirus and i think this just kind of plays into that that's my that's where i'm going yeah it's and it's too easy to just easily repack and then evade av again absolutely it's absolutely i get it i know av is valuable i understand that it gets a low-hanging fruit and i hate to dog it all the time but at the at the you know on the playing field i'm playing on it's not helping me Right, right, right. But then again, we're focusing on the stuff that's blowing past the AV. So, you know, maybe we have a filter. True enough. So the last story we have comes from the Naked Security blog. It is actually about the UPS uh, breach. And uh, the, the title is the UPS store breach, what went wrong and what UPS got right. So we've already talked about what went wrong. Uh, obviously, there's not there's not specific details about how the how the attackers entered their network. Uh, we do know that 51 of their stores out of uh, 4,470 stores were impacted. Um, but what I thought was most notable, and I think that what this article is really pointing out, is that contrasted with a lot of the other companies, U- the UPS store seems to be a lot more forthcoming. So on their website, you know, they 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 didn't have a really good way to go back and reach out to the estimated 100,000 impacted customers and let them know what happened. So what they did was they posted a a, a, a brief on their uh, their website and uh, their CEO posted an apology and and they listed each of the stores that had been breached and you know, the articles <clears throat> does kind of give a 
a bit of a, a subtle backhand to Target and Neiman Marcus and Michaels and and uh, and PF Chang's. Uh, however, I one thing I want to call out is maybe not shenanigans, but close to it. Um, if you look at Target, right? Target was had their hand forced, right? They they uh, th- they did not disclose on their timeline, right? So so Brian Krebs came out and and you know called them out, posted a posted a story. Uh, whereas the UPS store had a, I think they had almost two weeks where they w- were doing some investigation. So I think we have to be a little bit cognizant that it appears that the UPS store had an opportunity to do some investigation. And in fact, they make reference to a IT security company doing some, some investigation for them. Uh, so I do think that we're not comparing apples to apples when we talk about that. However, there is one thing that I will give them credit for that I think most of the other stores are guilty of. They did not claim that this was some super sophisticated attack and highly advanced malware. And and I, I do want to applaud them for, for not doing that. So thank you very much. Thank you to uh, Mr. Tim Davis, who is the CEO, for, 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 for not doing that. Uh, in other news, Jerry's going to get hired by the UPS store. <laughs> no. No, you make a really interesting point, right? When you can manage the timeline and manage the information release, you can manage perception. Now, I'm not saying that this is nefarious in any way, shape, or form, but I am saying that if you can get all of your ducks in a row and manage the message well, you're probably going to be perceived by the market as having a better handle on the situation. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so, so I think this. You know, I've seen I've seen numerous stories about how how well the UPS store has handled this. You know, and they they came out. They were very upfront. They they very clearly explain what happened. They list the stores that were impacted. And uh, and if if you look at most of those other cases, at the point in which the news hit the wire, they hadn't done an investigation yet, and so. Um, you know they didn't have an opportunity to manage the message like the UPS store did. So it, it is a, it is really important, I think, from a from a PR perspective to be able to do that. You, you can't always do it, and from a from a IT response perspective, it's probably a good idea to think about what you would do in each case where where you can manage the message and where you can't manage the message. So anyhow, that is uh, that is the. St- the show for this evening. Uh, once again, we are definitely looking forward to DerbyCon. I'm I just counting down the days. It's going to be awesome. And uh, in the meantime, if you have any feedback, please send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org, or you can hit us up on Twitter at defensivesec. You can uh, follow Mister Kellett on Twitter at lurg, and me on Twitter at maliciouslink. If you like the podcast, hey, tell a friend, give us a good review on on, uh, iTunes. And with that, we appreciate you listening, and we'll talk again next week. Thank you, guys. Good night. Take care.